Welcome to the latest episode of the Martin Sibley Show. Today we have an adventure and explorer, Jeff Holt, who actually had an accident in terms of how he became disabled. He was about 18 years of age and dived into shallow waters and ended up being paralyzed. So he'll be sharing that part of his story, but it's way more than that. His story is far more about a love and a passion of sailing, pushing his boundaries, and of course, raising awareness around disability issues and trying to encourage other disabled people to either get out there and sail or to get on with their own interests and passions and hobbies. So I know you're going to really enjoy hearing Jeff's motivating words and um, we'll check in with you again soon. So welcome to the latest edition of the Martin Sibley Show podcast. We've got our second guest in quite quick succession dining in from Portsmouth, I believe. Is that right, Jeff? That's right. And it looks very sunny and pleasant out behind you. It's not that the podcast people can see it, but on the video I can see you and it's lovely and sunny there. It's always sunny on the south coast. <laughs> Is that a fact? <laughs> uh, I wish it was. I wish it was. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you for joining me today, Jeff. I'm really, um, as we always kick off on the podcast, it's great for the listeners just to hear a bit more about your kind of backstory, a bit of who you are and where you grew up and about your disability, if that's something you're happy to talk about. But just share with us, who, who is Jeff Holt? Well, yeah, who's Jeff? Okay, um, uh, well, I was born locally in Portsmouth, um, in Hampshire, back in 66. So I'm just over 50 now. Um, I grew up locally, went to school locally, Left school at 16, um, went to sea. I, I went to join a sailing boat and sailed around the Mediterranean for six months and then joined another sailing boat and did uh, sail across the Atlantic a couple of times. So by the age of 18, 19, I'd sailed the Atlantic three times and you know, it, was my, it was my future. It's what I wanted to do, it was my career. Um, and I was working in the Virgin Islands, um, which some of your listeners may have heard about more recently in, on, you know, on the news with Hurricane Irma. Of course, um, yeah. Tortola, um, where I worked, has sadly been completely annihilated by this hurricane. But, but I was working there 30 um, odd years ago. I went to a beautiful beach called Cane Garden Bay um, one lunchtime, ran down the beach into the water, dived into the water, hit my head on the sand and broke my neck. So that was 1984. Um, I was 18, 19. Um, and it paralyzed me from the, you know, pretty much from the chest down. So um, I've been a, a, a wheelchair user ever since. It's really weird because at the time when you're 18, you think, um, you think, crikey, that, you know, I've had a good innings, so to speak. Um, that was pretty rough, but you know, it doesn't matter. I'll just get on with life. I'll deal with it. Um, you don't realize just how young you are at that age. Mm. Um, so I flew back. Eventually, they flew me back to England um, and I went to Salisbury to a spinal unit. I spent a year there um, and when I left I, uh, I took my nurse with me um, and Elaine and I have been uh, married 30 years now. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was worth paying my national insurance contributions for. Um, so yeah we've uh, so uh, the past 30 years have whizzed by they really have so I've been 30 years or more in a, in a powered wheelchair. Um, yeah, I, I retrained in computing at an early age when computers were still in their infancy. Mm -hmm. um, got a job with a firm of accountants um, as a marketing person and then 
So that kind of, the job paid for my hobby, which was sailing. Mm -hmm. I got back into disabled sailing. Um, and I was very lucky over the years, I got to um, be involved with disabled sailing in its infancy. So I saw it grow, I saw it get into the Paralympics. Um, I you know, was able to do some amazing sailing events of my own. Um, I, uh, you know, I sailed around Great Britain and I sailed across the Atlantic. I've been very lucky to do some amazing things. Um, I've got a 15 year old son. Um, so yeah, that kind of paints a picture. Sorry, uh, it's a bit longer answer than you expected. No, 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 that's cool. It sets the scene nicely and there's obviously a few different parts so that would be interesting to, to, to delve into. I mean, what one thing was just when you said you had the accident, like presumably you were underwater when you injured yourself. Was there someone that happened to be there that could get you out of the water? Yeah, I, I ran down, I got to my knees uh, in water depth. You know, you can't run anymore and you arms above the head, dived in, you know, like Baywatch style. Yeah. And, um, and bang, and hit my head. But I'd just taken a breath of water, a breath of air, sorry. And I, so I didn't pass out. Um, but I, I bobbed on the surface and I went to turn over and I physically couldn't. I, wow. That's the first I could hear this zinging in my ears. And I could open my eyes and I saw the sand rising and falling underneath me. I just held my breath and I just held it and held it thinking, I, you know, I just don't know what's going to happen. And fortunately for me, my friend who'd been on the beach as well had seen it happen. Right. Rolling me over and saying, are you all right? And I went to speak and I just didn't, you know, have the capacity to speak. Wow. So that's how it started. So I was very lucky um, that I could hold my breath long enough. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, that's, that's quite a hell of a thing to bounce back for. I know like from my disability, it's genetics or I've, always you know, had the wheelchair and had the carers. So, I mean, I think beyond, obviously, you had to go through an, a period of recuperation to recover from the, the, the physical impacts and the trauma and get yourself back to some stability. But I'd imagine, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it must have been the psychological part of then having been able to do all those things and then not being able to do them for yourself must have been hard. Do you know, Martin, it's, a, it's such a good question, Nate. The times, the hours, days, perhaps, when I was younger, spent with my friends debating, you know, friends were who were disabled from birth or disabled later in life, even older people. What would you rather, you know, what would you rather? You know, that, that terrible question, later in life um, or from birth when you don't know any different. Mm. Um, and I think you can't torture yourself like that. You have to just think shit happens. And, yeah. Uh, um, and do you know what? I think I have been, I, I've obviously thought about this question before. And um, I, when I had my accident and I was flown back to England, I was 18 years old. Uh, in my ward, there was four of us in a ward. Uh, there was Dave Howard, there was Tim Clare and a guy called Dizzy Holmes. And the four of us were all about the same age. Uh, Tim, myself and Dave had all broken our necks at the same level and Dizzy had broken his back. And four lads, all about 18, 19, 20, going through almost a year in hospital together, you could not show any weakness. The mm. moment you, this is gonna sound terrible, and this is a sexist thing to say, and I'm, not, I'm sure maybe girls would deal with things differently, but as guys, we could not show any emotion. The moment any of us, 
you know, felt sorry for ourselves, mm -hmm. then that was it. The other three rounded on us and picked <laughs> on us mercilessly. We were absolutely pulled to pieces. So you kind of just got on with it. And yeah. you did feel sorry for yourself, you did it in private. Um, it was a huge, it, I learned to understand very, very early on that it's pointless getting frustrated about things I can't do. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to be able to stand on a ladder and, you know, climb up a ladder. Can't do it anymore. So no matter, no matter how much fretting and lamenting it, it's mm -hmm. not going to happen. Save your energy for something else. So, um, you know, and there's things that able-bodied people can, can and can't do. For sure. It's just we, the list of things we can't do is a little bit more. So I kind of, that's how I dealt with it in my head. Um, and over the years, it's just got easier. Yeah. That makes sense. That does make sense. And I think uh, the thing you said about the lads, I remember when I was at uni and obviously having mentioned I've been disabled since birth, but we still very much, the lads I lived with at uni were in wheelchairs and we had that same camaraderie and almost bullied each other. And that, it just stops any of that self-loathing and self-pity, which is the fuel for getting on and living life and, and doing the things you want to do. Absolutely. I absolutely right. Cool. And so you then mentioned how you sort of ended up getting married and you ended up working. And so it's all intents and purposes once you've got your kind of independence set up with the wheelchair and, and the psychological area, you know, as we just described, you dealt with that. You sort of went on to, to sort of crack on with a good everyday life. So the other area I wanted to loop back around to was your passion. So, you know, you're always into sailing. It could have been quite easy to just assume that wouldn't really be as possible with the new circumstances you found yourself in. So when did you sort of first take a step back towards getting into sailing again? Uh, it is something I gave a lot of thought about. Mm. A lot of thought to. When I lost, when I had the accident, I thought immediately that I would never ever sail again. Um, it was so, it was painful. Um, I don't mean physically painful, I mean emotionally to think that because it wasn't part of my life. Sailing was my life. Um, you know, I lived on a yacht when I grew up with my mum and dad. Mm. Um, it, it, was, it was all I knew, and it was something that I did well. So I made a conscious decision after my accident. I shut sailing out of my life. I, I, you know, I, I didn't read about it. I wouldn't watch it on TV. I just shunned it. Um, and it was seven years later. It was 1991. Um, it was, I can't remember the exact date, but it was sometime in August 1991 that um, a disabled lady who I'd, it, but bizarrely, I, before my accident, I worked for a short time in a restaurant. And I remember this disabled lady used to come in and, and I used to look after her. I'm not, not, you know, I didn't go out of my way, but I helped her in and whatever. Anyway, would you believe it? After my accident, my, my wife did some agency nursing and she went back. Uh, and ended up nursing this lady. And this lady so I remember your husband. He uh, used to look after me in the restaurant. Um, and then we got to know each other, and we became very good friends. And it turned out this lady, who was much older than me, had been profoundly disabled since birth. Um, and she had designed a type of sailing dinghy called a Challenger sailing dinghy, mm. um, a trimaran sailing dinghy. And she said, I'm sure you'll be able to sail it despite your disabilities. And I was adamant, no, I won't, look at you, know, look at me, look at me, I can't do this, I can't do that. And she said, promise me you'll try it. So I went and tried it. I remember that first day, I remember it, I've got a brilliant photo that I use. 
um, when I give talks of this, the first time I got back in a boat um, after seven years. And I remember now Elaine was lifting me down into the boat. The BBC were there because the BBC knew, here's Jeff, this, this sailor that no one had actually seen sail, but you know, everyone knew that he was a yachtsman, back in a boat for the first time. And uh, Elaine lifted me into the boat and she just said, whispered in my ear, she just said, my God, I hope you know what you're doing. <laughs> because she'd never seen me sail. And I was terrified that I would have forgotten. I was terrified that I might, you know, it's on a river and I might hit something else on the river. Yeah. Um, but once I pulled in the, the main sheet and the tiller and started accelerating, it was just, you know, it's a very, very personal, special moment. I always remember thinking, and I'm just laughing to myself. I was just laughing uncontrollably that here I was back in a boat seven years later and I kind of made a pledge, pledge to myself at that point. That's it, I've got to get back into sailing. And it, from that point over the next crikey, 10 years, it just it escalated to something far beyond my dreams. So in terms of when you first got in the boat, were there any adaptions or were you able to use the Challenger the way a non-disabled person would? Well, the Challenger is so, is so simple, it's a dinghy. So it's, uh, it's got three holes and you sit in the middle one and you've got two controls. You've got a tiller, which is the steering bar left and right. And you've got what's called a main sheet, which is the rope to the big sail, which is the accelerator. Um, now, although I can't move my fingers very well to, to hold the rope, I would put it in my mouth and pull backwards. Right. It, so yeah, I had enough ability to sail it. And I then went on to compete in the championships. Um, I didn't do brilliantly. I wasn't a good racing sailor, but I did enjoy it. And I made a lot of friends. Um, and I'm still friends with many of those people now. And when you say it escalated, what did you mean by that? What I meant by that was this was, this was probably this was 1991. Um, within six to eight months, I was doing this racing. Mm -hmm. um, the Royal Yachting Association, which is the national governing body for sailing, um, decided at their meeting in 1992 they should have a protected space on the council for someone to represent disabled sailing. Wow. I got asked to do that. So all of a sudden the national governing body was, was making a commitment. Mm -hmm. um, three years later, um, a couple of organisations, Sailability and or the old Sailability and the Seamanship Foundation, um, were brought together and the Princess Royal, Princess Anne, um, suggested that we form one charity, a new charity to be called Our Way A Sailability. Um, and I was voted chairman of that new organisation. So this is an organisation that um, went from a standing start pretty much in 1995 to having 20, 30, 40,000 sailors over the next 10 years. Um, we went from three or four clubs in the UK, there's now 160 clubs in the UK, um, sailability clubs. Um, so that development um, was all on my watch. Well, a lot of it was on my watch. So I, I was at the epicentre of sailing in the UK. Um, there was an international committee founded called the International Federation for Disabled Sailing. So I sat on that representing Great Britain. Um, I was involved in getting sailing into the Paralympics in 1996, that was in Atlanta. So you can see all of a sudden, I'm, I'm kind of find myself in this in this um, vortex of yeah. um, committees and trying to sell myself. I was a, I was a, a selector as well for the British Disabled Sailing Team. 
I sat on the British uh, Paralympic Association, and it just it, it just ended up taking consuming a huge amount of time. I didn't get much time to sail, but what it did do was it kind of prepared me for this uh, the, the, the political world of sport, mm. um, and I've I've done my time in it now. I've you know it's not it's not some uh, something I'd encourage people to to run in, to run towards. I'd say stick to the sailing itself rather than the committee work. Yeah, you hear that a lot. Don't you? When people have a really you know big passion, and whenever you're powered by passion, you have more motivation. You give more energy. You get good at it. You get more in demand. And then suddenly you find that you're in the middle of the decision making world with all of its politics and its meetings, and you get drawn away from the exact thing that you loved. I, I, quite, and not only that, some of your dearest friends who were there with you at the beginning may have issues with some of the policies and decisions mm. you're involved with at the top. Um, so I, I, um, I guess it was towards the end of the 90s, I decided I wanted to do something quite, uh, I felt confident in doing a, a high profile publicity, not a stunt, but something to draw attention to disabled sailing. So I decided to sail around the Isle of Wight um, on my own in my Challenger. In fact, I had done it earlier on in the 90s, but it took a huge amount of time and I, there wasn't any publicity. So I did a big event in 1997 um, that got a lot of publicity. A lot of people saw what was capable um, in the national. Bear in mind, this is pre-internet. This is pre-Facebook mm. you know, and everything. Everything relied on yachts and yachting magazine and um and the local bbc um anyway we it got good publicity um i then a couple of years later decided if i could sail around the isle of wight then that was 60 miles in one day mm -hmm. if i did a few 60 miles and 60 miles and 60 miles it would you know if you do all the joined up dots you it's possible to sail around great britain Mm -hmm. and, um, and I know not everyone's mind thinks like that, <laughs> but it's how my warped mind thought. So I did, that's what I, I put together my personal Everest project, which was to sail on my own in my dinghy around Great Britain. Um, I had a lifeboat with me the whole time, um, and my wife, my five-year-old son at the time, um, the team, they drove three vehicles, two motorhomes and a Land Rover. Wow. We set off on May the 14th, 2007, and we went to 51 harbours around the UK. Um, it took 110 days, um, and I got back on September the 5th, and, uh, 2007. So it was that, without doubt, will, will forever be the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I had to get into that boat at four or five o'clock in the morning. I'd appear, my, you know, my wife would get me up and help with my medical care at three, four in the morning. I'd get into a dry suit, I'd put a helmet on, a life jacket on, and my safety survival gear. And I'd get into that little boat, and I'd sail it from five o'clock in the morning till six, seven, eight o'clock at night, wow. almost every single day, um, for a hundred days. Um, and meanwhile, the, the shore crew would say goodbye in the morning, and they would drive round to the end point. Um, and of course, the big unpredictable thing was the weather. Yeah. It took 110 days to go to 51 harbours. So, you know, um, on average, we only sailed one day for every two days that we, um, that we actually were away. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it took it was a long, long, long haul. It cost a huge amount of money, um, but it raised. It was right at the infancy of the internet, really, and I managed to get a lot of publicity from it. And so it was, it was buoyed up, if you excuse the pun, um, mm-hmm. from all of that that I decided two years later to sail back across the Atlantic um, as a quadriplegic back to the beach where I had my accident in right. So I found someone who owned a privately owned 60 foot fully wheelchair accessible catamaran, big, beautiful yacht called Impossible Dream. Um, I persuaded the owner, Mike Brown, who was paraplegic, uh, to let me borrow the boat. And I did. So in 2009-10, I sailed that huge great yacht back across the Atlantic. There was only one start and one stop. It took four weeks. uh, 3,000 miles, and all I had with me, so I did all of the sailing, um, all I had with me was a PA, a personal assistant, mm-hmm. carer, um, who, who helped lift me and, um, you know, shower and wash me and everything and feed me, but I did all of the sailing, and it took four weeks, and, and I made landfall back in Cane Garden Bay, which is where I had the accident 30 years earlier. Wow, what a story, what a story. I mean, on the, when you were going around Great Britain, when you were, did you say you were in the boat on your own on those, those trips? So did you ever get into any tricky situations where you sort of were unable to do something because of your disability? Um, the only time really probably was when the weather on one particular leg got so horrendous and that was between, um, uh, it was between Arbroath and Dunbar. Mm-hmm. And it was a long leg. And it, um, actually there was another one as well that was similar, but the weather changed unpredictably. And the boat became unmanageable. Um, mm-hmm. Even with my limited strength and what I could do, I couldn't physically manage the boat. And it, night was falling. Um, they tried to get a, a safety rope to me and it, it took an hour to get the safety rope to me. Oh, wow. Every time I kept dropping it. And meanwhile, the wind was picking up. It was getting more and more dangerous. And bizarrely, the, this is counterintuitive, but we were fast approaching. The only option left was for me to throw myself into the water <laughs> and to be picked up by the safety boat because they mm. couldn't get close to my dinghy. It was going to damage them. Right. Uh, luckily, just with, uh, with seconds to go, I managed to catch this rope in my teeth and I wrapped it around uh, my arm and they pulled the boat in towards them. It nearly pulled my arm out of it, <laughs> but they secured me. So, so the boat, every, every day it was set up. So I had a VHF radio set up in my helmet. All I had to do was push something on my chest to broadcast. Yeah. Uh, they would get food and water to me on, a, on an extended fishing net. Right. Uh, that would come out and they would tip it into my lap. Um, and normally it was a pie and a Mars bar. Um, and the <laughs> that is because I was constantly getting wet. You can't eat sandwiches because they just disintegrate. Yeah, sure. You have to eat something that stays together. Um, and yeah, I had water in a backpack behind me, but hot drinks came over that way. So no, my disability didn't really affect the sailing in that way because the boat was set up with the latest electronics. It was really quite cool, but it had to be pre... So it was more than just the rope and the tiller. This particular um, boat, the Round Britain boat, had depth sounder, had a chart plotter, 
Um, it had what's called AIS, so it could be plotted remotely from the shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it had a lot more gizmos and gadgets than yeah. uh, just the straightforward dinghy. Oh, that's phenomenal. Well, no, yeah, congratulations on those achievements, Jeff. Like, I'm sort of there with you in the boat, imagining the change of weather and all the dangers that were going on. But you must have felt very uh, proud and your family must have felt very proud of you afterwards. Yeah, it wasn't, until, it wasn't really until I got back, the final two or three legs, did it really dawn on me what I'd just done. Um, it just, it was, it was surreal. Because when you're living in the moment, it's just, you're just getting on with it. I mean, there were times I thought I wouldn't finish because the weather was so bad. Um, And it was extremely um, demoralizing and my crew were demoralized at times. But I, I effectively, I was the leader. So I had to pull them up. Um, Mm. And it was very tough being, you know, with the physical limitations, with the mental pressures as well of sponsorship, uh, money, Mm. um, and... This, this is something you may... Okay, here's something for the disabled listeners to get their head around. It was the fear of... And it's not the first time in my life this has happened. It was the fear of failure, but the fear... I'm not, I'm not feared of fa- fear of failure. What, what I worry about is people making allowances for my failure because mm. of my disability. Yeah, yeah, I know what, what you I mean. What I didn't want to happen was mm. for them to say, oh, we didn't make it. But it doesn't matter. He did a good job. Um, you know, look, he's quadriplegic. He's paralyzed. Um, so he, he did a really good job. That, that just frightens the life out of me. It happened when I was at work. Just a very quick story. When I, was, I worked for Deloitte for 15 years. Right. Became head of marketing for Deloitte in the 90s and um, uh, and there was a period when I had a, a pressure sore on my heel um, and it got worse and worse and you could you know you could see the tendon through the pressure sore the pain was incredible yeah. so what I did is I cut the back out of my expensive shoes so the, the heel didn't rub and um, uh, and but I never told anybody I never told my secretary I never told my boss no one knew and and I had these pads collecting all the blood on the back of my shoe. So I went to work every day. And one day at work, I went to, uh, uh, over to a filing cabinet. And as I reversed, my shoe came off. And it came off on, on the floor. And so I had, because it had no heel on it. So I pulled my foot back on. And I went over and I got a newspaper. And I put the newspaper over the shoe. And I waited for my wife to come in at five o'clock to go and get my shoes. I didn't want anyone to see it. Mm. I didn't want anyone to know that what was wrong in case they made allowances for me. Yeah. That, that might be a bit weird, I don't know. But it kind of, I just, I don't want people make, saying, oh, he, you know, we're making allowances because he's disabled. I will make the choice whether to do something or not. Um, and I will make that choice whether I think it's achievable or not. Yeah. If I don't achieve it, it's not because of my disability, it's because something else got in the way. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's a very personal insight into me as a human being, maybe. Yeah, I think that is very normal. And I guess one of the questions is if the world was more attuned with disability, then you, know, it, you wouldn't have had the fear that they would have then made the allowances. 
but I think you're absolutely right within the way the world has been, particularly in that sort of very corporate, profit-driven culture. Um, it's a bit Darwinist, isn't it? Every man for himself. It is. It is. You don't want to show weakness. Well, I'm an example, um, which I'll just touch on a little bit too much in depth, but over the past year, um, I've had an issue with, with my arm, which has caused me to um, effectively be go off grid <clears throat> for the past 12 months. And this is something that I can't hide. I can't pretend isn't there. It's, it's actually affected um, uh, some of my sponsorships. But you're, you know, no matter how much my sponsors and my supporters say, oh, do you know what, it doesn't matter, it does matter. Mm-hmm. Because they're now looking over their shoulder at the next person who doesn't have issues with their arm. Um, maybe I over, overthink it, over-worry it. Um, but the more that I can keep private to myself, um, I feel I'm in a, a better position of power. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. That's very interesting, Jeff. Well, we better start winding the interview up. Um, the listeners will be coming to the end of their coffee break or commute to and from work or whatever. Um, I get one, one quick thing just for what we were saying about the uh, achievements that you've made was purely how when you got to the Virgin Islands, was there some feeling of closing a loop or putting something to rest or was it not as sentimental as that? It, it I mean, you know, it won't surprise you people think that maybe, but it was, it was never, um, it was never about closure. Right. Uh, it was never about putting things to rest. It was about celebration. Yeah. At the time, it was 25 years and, and I, it was, for me, it was a celebration of what I'd achieved. Nice. Um, it drew global attention to what I'd done, um, but all, not, not that I wanted it for myself, but it drew global attention onto disability, onto things like access, Mm-hmm. Um, things like travel, uh, you know, as we were speaking about, um, but also about um, getting people on the water, which I'm passionate about. Yeah, no, I love that. that. That's really nice. So I guess the final kind of rounding off question is, what's for the future? Have you got any plans? But also, I think if you can wrap around that, any thoughts and advice for people that are disabled and looking to get into sailing or something of that that world, it'd be great to finish on that note. <laughs> So right now, and something I've not mentioned, but for the past five, six years, I have devoted my life to a project called Wet Wheels. Mm-hmm. Wet Wheels is a power boat, because um, not everyone can sail. Something I've learned over the years, I love sailing, of course I do, but not everyone with a disability can sail because of their disability. They might not want to get out of their wheelchair. Um, and not everybody wants to sail but a huge number of people want to get on the water. Mm-hmm. So I founded Wet Wheels, which is these 30-foot power boats that do 35, 40 knots. Each one of them does uh, can take 10 passengers, and three of them can be in wheelchairs. We take every disability, and I, we've, we've yet to have a profound and complex one that we can't cater for. And not only that, but everyone gets to drive the boat as well. Um, we've now got three of these boats, Jersey, Southampton, and Portsmouth. I've got plans for another two next year. Now, each boat costs £160,000. Wow. Not cheap. Um, but th- this is my, this is my, um, it's, it's the thing, one of the things I'm most proud of is the ability to get, you know, we're, each boat is getting over a thousand people on the water a year. And 80% of them have never been on the water. Mm. Um, so I'm immensely proud of Wet Wheels. I've got a fantastic team. Um, but in the future, I'd like to sell around the world. Um, but more than just sell around the world, I'd like to establish 
four or five hubs around the world, centers of excellence, where you have a sailing boat, you have a wet wheels boat, you have a, a Paralympic um, class boat. Actually, let's get some hubs going around the continent where people can go, stay, rather than go for a day, and learn a skill, go for a holiday, um, and actually, or just get on the water. And you know, that's what I really want. I, I we call it accessible oceans. In my mind, it's called accessible oceans. Uh, and that's what I want to do. And I need to find, I need to find people who are going to help make that a reality. Um, and uh, it's, that's one of the projects which is at the top of my list at the moment. Well, that's a really good, another good goal to go for. Um, obviously, if anyone's listening, I hope they'll get in touch if they're able to help you in any way, whether that be general support. And of course, if there's potential sponsors as well, I'm sure that would always be welcome from your side. Um, but thank you for joining me today, Jeff, and good luck with all the future endeavours. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Martin. Thank you to Jeff for a fascinating interview there. Um, I'm certainly ready to go and jump on board a boat and get back on the, out on the lake and get a bit of sailing going again. I'm particularly looking forward to having a go on the wheelie boat out on the south coast of England's waters out to sea. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to Jeff's story um, and feeling just as inspired and motivated to go out and whether it be sailing or any other hobby that you've been yearning to do, um, it's definitely a big call to action for everyone to get out there and follow their dreams. Uh, that's another episode done. I'm really getting into my stride of all these podcasts, really enjoying making them and I hope you're enjoying listening to them and as always if you can help me get the word out and share it with a few friends and family that would be very much appreciated and of course do let me know of any other guests that you'd quite like to have on the show that you think would have an interesting story or uh, words of wisdom for the listeners so please do get in touch with suggested guests as well and until next time take care and bye bye